people who we know, maybe who are friends who are struggling with their beliefs, family members who are struggling with their beliefs, but grew up among us as Christians. This series is for you and for them. Invite them to Mass for this season of Lent. They can catch last Sunday's homily, the first in the series, and today's homily, and all subsequent homilies recorded and posted on our parish website homepage. And there will be links there for podcasts also. Offer your Lenten sacrifices and fast for them. Pray for them throughout the season of Lent. This homily series will address some of their reasons for not believing in God with proofs or existence, uh, proofs or arguments for the existence of God. And they will be based on solid scientific research and resources, rather than my own ideas or my own opinions. I draw from different resources for each homily, but I'm most indebted to Father Robert Spitzer, who's a priest and a scientist, who has written a ton of books and articles and runs an awesome website for providing answers for faith, science, and reason, and how they all fit together. This Lenten homily series will be presented in the following order. On Sunday, as I mentioned, we covered God and science and how they work together. Today will be evidence of a soul. And then this weekend will be the Big Bang Theory, Evolution Theory, Christianity. And then the subsequent weeks, uh, God and philosophy. Another week, evil and suffering actually pointing to the existence of God. The following week, all you need is one miracle to prove life beyond the natural realm. Just one miracle. And then the final week is the Eucharist and the case for Christ. Let's begin today's homily, Evidence of a Soul. In today's first reading from the book of Joel, chapter 2, God speaks through the prophet these words. Even now, says the Lord, return to me with your whole heart, with fasting and weeping and mourning. Rend your hearts, not your garments, and return to the Lord your God. For gracious and merciful is he, slow to anger, rich in kindness, and relenting in punishment. People who experience near-death experiences often report common aspects that can be verified using the scientific method. One such aspect is the overwhelming experience of love, in which, like the words of God from the prophet Joel that we just heard, the clinically dead person comes to know something of the graciousness and mercy of God. For this homily, I'd like to look at these common aspects known to people who have had near-death experiences. But of course, it begs the question, what is a near-death experience? I think we all know what that is, but just in case we don't. It's when a person dies. It usually happens near death experiences in hospitals because that's where people are often revived. But it can also be a place where these experiences are tested in a clinical way. And so a person will die, let's say, of a heart attack. And all of the whole team comes in, the doctors and the nurses and the technicians and the technology and the medicines, and they're working on a person. Sometimes the person's heart has stopped and their brain functions have ceased, and they've been out for several minutes or even more than that. But then for whatever reasons, both physiologically and, of course, spiritually, the person comes back. And in some of those cases where they come back, 
we now know that people are experiencing something while they're dead. And it's these common aspects that we're going to look at. The relationship between near-death experiences and religion can be either helpful or problematic. And the Catholic Church has not yet declared an official stance on near-death experiences. This neutral position allows us to question whether we should take near-death experiences into consideration. Citing evidence for a near-death experience should be done with caution. Some people may have a near-death experience, but if it's not from a longitudinal, peer-reviewed study, then there's no way to verify its validity. A longitudinal, peer-reviewed study means that all the evidence is studied not just by the, the research group, like made up of doctors and scientists and other researchers conducting a particular study, but then by other professional peers who look at that same study, and these peers are from the same competence in the same fields, and then what they do is they check, they test, and they scrutinize the evidence, and then, and then uh, arrive at the same conclusions if indeed um, you know, the tests have been done well and they've been able to uh, come to some conclusion. They either deny that or they're able to, to verify that. Basically, what they do is follow the scientific method. In fact, this homily, uh, for this homily, I looked at four peer-reviewed scientific studies among the multitude that now exists in the last 20 or so years of studying near-death experiences clinically. The Parnia Southampton University study from 2014, it studied 2,060 patients with cardiac arrest in hospital settings. The Lancet, which is Britain's most prestigious medical journal, reported the findings of Dr. Prim Van Lommel from 2001 involving 344 cardiac patients in 10 Dutch hospitals. A fascinating study for me was Dr. Kenneth Ring from 2006 study at the University of Connecticut. It studied the near-death experiences of blind people and, and, and what I found fascinating is that their experiences conformed to the common near-death experience patterns of other studies where they studied people who had sight. In fact, they did not vary what their conclusions were from what people who had sight, people who were blind. And in three different categories, those who were bl born blind, so never had sight, those who had lost sight somewhere in their life, and those who had minimal light perception. Many of the blind, clinically dead patients claimed to be able to see during the near-death experience. And then interviews with other people who were in the same rooms, family members, doctors, nurses, and so on, during the near-death experience episode, verified what the near-death experience patients described in detail. The blind individuals were describing in detail everything they saw. And some of them have never seen with their eyes, which is incredible. The Dr. Joyce Holden 2007 study was a compilation of 39 separate studies, collectively bringing in 3,500 patients. 
and use very stringent criteria. All these studies found verifiable experiences common to near-death experiences. In this homily, I will take my information from these scientific studies, research, as opposed to individual counts. But I want to end with one, in one individual count. There are three aspects of near-death experiences related to the teachings of the church that can be explored. And that's the purpose of this homily. There are others that uh, are among these studies, but I just don't have time to get into that. And then again, I want to uh, take on a fourth aspect, which I'll give through an individual account. What are these three? Evidence of the transphysical. That is, evidence of a soul or a consciousness of a life after death. And then number two, near-death experiences resemble the teachings of the church as given to us by the Bible in regards to Christ's own resurrection from the dead. And number three, the experiences of God's unconditional love. Let's get into it. Evidence, number one, of the transcendental. Upon leaving the physical body, a near-death experienced patient journeys to a transphysical state where they frequently meet deceased relatives. One peer-reviewed study reports an encounter of a child, let's call him John, who undergoes a near-death experience. John wakes up from his coma to tell his parents, I've seen Aunt Nellie in San Francisco, and she said to tell you that she's all right. The parents are astonished to hear this. First of all, they had lost contact with her. They didn't know she was in San Francisco. Seeing as they had not seen Aunt Nellie in years, and John had never met her. But lo and behold, they find out that Aunt Nellie had died of a heart attack in the streets of San Francisco at the same exact date and time that John was undergoing clinical death in St. Louis, Missouri. This encounter, one among many cited in the study, demonstrates the common ability of near-death experienced patients to converse with the deceased. Other patients describe events that occurred in the hospital room or exact conversations between loved ones in the waiting room as they lie clinically dead, even clinically brain dead. When properly vetted, these reports can be used as evidence to show that there really is more than just physical reality. These reports consistently point to life beyond the physical life, a consciousness that exists beyond the life of the body, the evidence of transcendental soul. Number two, near-death experiences in the resurrected body. In 1 Corinthians 15, St. Paul tells us that we will have glorified spiritual bodies in heaven. A majority of people who undergo near-death experiences describe that they had a new transphysical form that was, not just, that was not subject to the laws of nature. Patients would hover above their physical bodies, pass through walls of waiting rooms and hospitals, ascend multiple floors of hospitals, and frequently go to the other side. Although these 
this transphysical form differs from Jesus' resurrected body in terms of power and glory. Recall that in Scripture, Jesus appeared as a spirit and walked through walls. But his was a resurrected body, a spiritual body. Moreover, St. Paul tells us that in our glorified bodies, we will still be embodied. That is, able to use our five senses. This embodiment corresponds with reports of near-death experiences. As those undergoing near-death experiences, one frequently visits with deceased relatives and is able to recognize their physical features. Thus, an account of the transphysical form of the near-death experience being able to transcend the laws of nature There is a correlation between the transphysical form and what St. Paul describes as the glorified body. What Jesus and St. Paul tell us about life after death correlates to what scientific research in our modern age has reported about near-death experiences. Number three, near-death experiences and and God's unconditional love. Another similarity between revelation in the scriptures and through Christianity, what we know, and near-death experiences is the overwhelming presence of love that they feel while undergoing a transphysical journey. When patients cross over to the other side, they often encounter an overwhelming, loving white light or a person. A significant percentage of near-death experience patients describe this light as personal, loving, affirming, affectionate, and finally as compassionate. The person feels absorbed by this loving light while still keeping their own identity. The love and benevolence of the white light seems to indicate the intention of a loving God to fulfill our greatest desire, namely, unconditional love and joy with God throughout eternity, which resembles Jesus' revelation of God in the scriptures. In sum, by comparing near-death experiences and the common aspects among them with revelation from God through Christianity, one sees many similarities. I've just been able to give three. As Catholics, it is possible to point to scientific data on near-death experiences as further evidence of a transcendent soul, the glorified body, and for God's unconditional love. If a person you know is struggling with a belief in God and leans more toward science than religion, which what we covered in last weekend's homily, reading additionally longitudinal peer-reviewed scientific studies of near-death experiences can help them with their questions about the existence of God. If there is a consciousness, for instance, or a soul, then the clinically dead person encounters in near-death experiences, such as when they meet loved ones, let alone the consciousness that the clinically dead patients report about themselves during a near-death experience, this lends evidence to the existence of life beyond our natural realm, which points to a spiritual reality above and beyond the physical. 
And so, if your loved one is struggling with these beliefs in God and is more scientifically inclined, this can help them because we're talking about scientific studies here. If scientific studies report the common aspect of a glorified body, again as an example, one is able to pass through walls. This matches up with what Christ showed us about the afterlife in his own resurrected body. Here, Revelation is correlating with the facts surrounding near-death experiences. And if near-death experience patients report encountering overwhelming love, unlike anything they experience in normal human love in this life, this certainly points to the many descriptions of God who time and time again reveals himself not just as a distant God of the cosmos, but one who unconditionally loves us in a personal and intimate way. And even here you can see a progression from last week's homily, which dealt with the God of cosmos, to now one who is more personal and more intimate. Both aspects are important. And both can help with a progression towards belief of the God of the cosmos to a love of the person of God. Along those lines, considering near-death experiences and their studies can be a helpful step forward. Believing in the existence of God and it can confirm in the mind of people who already call themselves Christians that which you have believed all your lives. In either case, both the person struggling with belief and the person who already believes, we all must learn to allow what we have come to accept with our heads to migrate to our hearts and the way that we live our lives. For ultimately, like so many people who experience near-death experiences, the journey through this life is all about not just coming to know God exists, but the willingness to love God and allow the love of God to change us, to shape and to mold us into the people we were always created to be by this God. And by living in such a state of God's love, we are able to cross over into heaven one day, having lived for what we believed, something, someone, more than ourselves. And that someone, more than ourselves, is God. I said I wanted to end with another common characteristic, but to give this one to you um, as an individual case. A lot of near-death experience uh, patients who are brought back talk about another common experience, and that is after the experience, in the weeks, in the months, in the years that follow that, and some of the studies that have been done have followed patients years after the experience to see what happened to their life. Many of these studies show that the person is dramatically changed. Their life is is forever altered by this experience. And the majority of them to the positive. That they have this encounter with God, and this encounter with God either helps them to believe and or 
once they start believing or if they were already a believer, it helps them to grow in a deeper love for God like they never had before. And it causes them to go through a conversion experience, a transformation of their life, and they live their life completely different, now always oriented toward God in everything they do and they say and in their relationships. Essentially, they become an authentic Christian. This is what happened to my father. I've shared some things about his life since I've been here as your pastor. My father had a heart attack in a hospital. And like is normal, all the doctors and nurses and technology and medicine comes rushing into him. My father was um, uh, dead for many, many minutes. And um, the doctors and the nurses were able to bring him back. In the months that followed, we did not know that my dad had a near-death experience. He kept it to himself. Primarily because he didn't quite know what it was. And the reason why is, as I've shared with you, my father was agnostic. Meaning, he didn't deny the existence of God, but he didn't know if God existed. So he never did anything to find out if God existed because he didn't think there was a way to find that out. There was a way to verify whether God existed or not. So he never pursued that up and down his life. And that's the way I grew up, was with my father not um, uh, believing and not willing even to have conversations about a belief in God or whether God existed. And so he had this powerful experience, and he had all these um, experiences I just described through these studies, we found out later when he shared this with us. But he went for 10 months like this, not knowing what it was, because he didn't have the spiritual concepts in his mind because he didn't grow up with that. He didn't have that personal frame of reference to know what this was. And he didn't even have the language, therefore, because he didn't have the concepts to be able to articulate what had happened to him. It was so super phenomenal for him. One day I come home. Uh, I was in the seminary at the time. And, uh, and, and God and his, it was, it was all grace, opened up a conversation between my father and I. And that's a story for another time. We had this awesome conversation in which he allowed me to have a conversation about God, about religion, about faith. Again, something that he had never done ever as his son. And now I was in college in seminary. As we're talking, he then opens up about what had happened to him 10 months earlier in the hospital room. And he describes everything. And all the characteristics that I just described in these studies, they were all there, rolling off the tongue of my father. And he didn't know what it was. I mean, he had been thinking about the experience every day, multiple times a day, about the love and about the peace and about the acceptance and about the warmth and all that kind of stuff. And he held on to that. He cherished it. But he didn't know who it was and what it was. And so when he started speaking in terms of this white light and he goes towards it and so on, all of his loved ones around him receiving him, he asked, what was the white light? And I opened the scriptures to him and I showed him 
in the Old Testament, in the New Testament, who the white light is. You know, like Jesus says, I'm the light of the world, right? The beginning of the dawn of creation, let there be light. To the very end of the book of Revelation, God coming down out of the light to consummate his relationship with his bridegroom. I showed him these things. And as he began to see that this was God, he, be, he, he just started to cry. And not just to cry, but to weep. Because he realized that he had had an encounter with God. And this encounter was a beautiful one. And putting those two together, it just overwhelmed him. At the end of this, he had another question for me. And the question was, why was I sent back? And I said, Dad, I I don't have the answer for you. I don't know. But I said, maybe the reason why, maybe the reason why you were sent back is so that God is giving you an opportunity before you die one day to come to know him in this life and choose him in this life. Because this is the only place where we do choose him. When we die, we've already made our choice. So maybe that's what you're supposed to do. And at that point, he asked me to lead him in a prayer to do just that. We did that. And from that day forward, he had given his life to God. And it was beautiful because my mother and my father were estranged. And they fell back in love. One of my sisters was estranged from him also. And they reconciled. And my father's health came back. All of the things that were, the problems in his life with his heart and his cancer stuff, all that went away. He was in remission and, um, and he lived a beautiful life for the next two and a half years. And then after everything was said that needed to be said and everything that was done was needed to be done, my father passed from this world. God had given him this opportunity to come to know him and to love him. This is what I want for not just you, if you're struggling in your beliefs, but I want for the people that you are most concerned about. The people that you're thinking about a lot, the people that you're worried about, the people that you're praying for and that you love who are struggling with a belief in God and who are not here with you this evening. I've done my part to give this to you. Now it's your time to do your part to give them this also.